Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's a brown hardback Bible under your chair, or the chair in front of you looks like this. Just grab that and go to the very end of the Bible, the very, very end. It's the last book. It's called Revelation. And if you go to page 867, page 867, you'll find Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Hear then the word of the Lord from Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you speak to the churches, that your Spirit speaks to the churches, that you have given us ears to hear, And so we pray that we would indeed hear, listen, heed, humble ourselves, that we would tremble under your word in order that we might believe it, that we might see you and the world in light of it, and that we might obey what you're calling us to do here, Father. We pray that you would soften our hearts. We even pray, Lord, for personal or corporate church revival in the sense of giving us fresh life, a sense of renewal, a sense of a fresh start, a sense of going back to the most important thing in our lives and in the world. Father, none of these spiritual effects can happen apart from the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that as we abide in Christ and his words abide in us, that you would help us to bear much fruit and glorify your name through us. For any of our non-Christian friends who are here, Lord, open their eyes to see the beauties of Christ, the loveliness of Christ, that they would gladly give themselves to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you know or enjoy the stories of Sherlock Holmes, the great British detective with his uh, trusty assistant, Dr. Watson, very knowledgeable man? There's a story, and you probably heard this before, but it makes the point well here. Um, Holmes and Watson were on a camping trip. In the middle of the night, Holmes wakes up and gives Dr. Watson a nudge. Watson, he says, look up in the sky and tell me what you see. I see 
millions of stars, says Watson. And what do you conclude from that, Watson? Watson thinks for a moment, well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. Theologically, I see that God is all-powerful and we are small and insignificant. Uh, What does it tell you, Holmes? Watson, you idiot. Someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) Sometimes you can miss the obvious and miss the whole point by pontificating and talking about a lot of things and missing the the, the real meaning of, of the situation. Uh, you can think of times in your life when, when you've really missed the point. Actually, a lot of times when you fight with a family member or spouse, I don't know if you've ever gotten to this or maybe it's just me in my marriage, but where I could get nitpicky on words. So there's a real correction my wife is giving me, but I want to fight about the way she said it and a specific word to, to avoid the actual issue at hand, to, to, to intentionally miss the point and get it off topic to sort of um, save my pride. Oftentimes when we miss the point, it's humorous and not a big deal like this joke that was written by Thomas Cathcart about Watson and Sherlock Holmes. Other times, missing the point can be catastrophic. Adam and Eve missed the point of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden when they ate it instead of obeying God. Judas missed the point of what it meant to be the Messiah, what the kingdom of God was when he betrayed Jesus for 30 shekels of silver. The Pharisees missed the point often in their reading of the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Missing the point can be serious and catastrophic, but it doesn't always have to be irreversible. That's why God gives us the gift of repentance to turn around and to turn back to him in faith instead of continuing in missing the point. Now, this is a big fear of mine, the fear of regret. I think about death often. Maybe not as often as I should, but I think about it a lot because we only get one life and it will be gone quicker than we know and realize. And so I think often about legacy. What am I leaving to my kids and potentially my grandkids and to our church family? I fear that I might be, my life might be astray. Like if God's calling me to go this way and I'm just kind of going this way and 30 years from now I look back and realize I was way off track. I, I fear, my, I guess it's the fear of regret that I have. Am I, am I doing what God's telling me to do right now in this season of my life? Or am I missing the point? You know, your kids, I, I look at my older brothers and sisters here who have kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. And, you know, you have told me oftentimes how quick it, how quick it, it passes, right? They're born, they're out of the house, and you're just, you move on. And it goes by so fast. And I fear regrets as a husband, as a father, as a church member, as a, as a neighbor. Most of all... Um, I guess I fear as a pastor that our church could actually miss the point, right? As a church, you join a church because if you move the church, you change the world. That's the way God has set up this world in terms of world impact for Christians. And the kingdom of God invades the world through the people of God, sharing the gospel and loving their neighbors. We could be on the right track. I mean, if you join this church or join a church, you could have been on the right track in your own life. And then you're part of a church that that goes astray. And then you've devoted your life in some ways to a church that might have missed the point, a church that can close down, a church that can be decommissioned. Jesus does decommission churches. 
a church that closes down. You guys live for Jesus, the Christians here, and and um, I fear being sidelined or being pulled to the bench, to use a sports analogy, to being sidelined from the battle too quickly for missing the point. And that's the situation here. Look at Revelation 2, verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Jesus says here, um, Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. So there, repent. Otherwise what? I will come to you and do what? Remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So there, the, the command is clear. What's the command? Twice said, repent. If you don't, what's going to be removed? Your lampstand. And the lampstand is the church. If you read Revelation 1 verse 20, the lampstand... The seven lampstands are the seven churches in Asia that, that these letters are written to. So the, the, the light of the church will be removed if they don't, if they don't, you know, repent, if they don't turn back and fix their course. So the main idea here for us, the main intention God has for us from this passage, if you're going to read it with a humble, receptive heart, is God wants us to repent from our sins so that Jesus does not remove our church, the light of our church, the lampstand of our church. We need to repent so that Christ does not remove our lampstand. Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 1. Just before we get into the outline here, this is all introduction. If you want to kind of follow along in your handout right on the back sheet of Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, the hymn, you do have a, a short outline here of, um, of the sermon. You could fill it in. But before we jump into these four reasons to repent, let's look at verse 1. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Let's just think about that phrase. So this is written... To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Why an angel? There's a debate about what it means here. What is the angel? But I'll just tell you what I think it is. It's probably a spiritual being, not a human, but an angelic being who represents that local church. In Daniel, there are angelic beings who represent certain countries or nations or regions. There are guardian angels in a sense, not one guardian angel per Christian at, at, for their whole lives, but there are times where angels guard Different humans that are assigned to different things like that. And an angel, it's not inconceivable, can be assigned to a church for a season or whatever the case. And so this is written to the angel who represents the church. But it's not just to the angel because that's kind of weird. Why would you write a letter rebuking an angel and telling an angel to repent? It's really written to the church through the angel. And why do I say it's written to the church? What does verse 7 say? Let anyone who has an ear to hear listen to what? What the Spirit says to who? The church is. So, yes, it's to the angel in the beginning, but at the end, it tells you the point of it. This is the Spirit speaking to the churches. Now, what is a church? A church is, what is a local church? A church is a group of Christians who take responsibility for each other's discipleship, both individually and corporately, in order to disciple the nations. That's what a local church is. That's the difference between a group of Christian friends and a local church. A local church is a group of Christians who take responsibility for each other's discipleship, both corporately and individually, in order to disciple the nation. So this is written to the church, this group, in Ephesus. Now, what is Ephesus? Just a little bit of historical background here. Not much, but Ephesus is maybe the most prominent church in terms of teaching pedigree of all of the New Testament. But first, a little bit more about the city. The, 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 the city of Ephesus had a temple built to Artemis. Okay, Artemis was uh, a god, I mean, there's the, or Diana, if you use the Roman terms, or Artemis, if you use the Greek. There was a huge temple to Artemis. It was built in the place where there used to be a tree, a holy tree. It was a tree shrine that they built this humongous temple over. In Ephesus, it was a place of asylum for criminals. If you committed a crime, you can go to Ephesus and be 
um, free and actually without without facing the penalty of the law, without facing justice, to the point that some people in some people met up in Ephesus for criminal organizations because there was a, a sense of freedom there in the asylum there in Ephesus. Sanctuary city, yes. Well, wait, you just made, you just baited me into a political comment. No, I take that back. Sanctuary, okay, whatever, you can think about that, whatever you want. Ephesus, okay, asylum place. Now, um, Paul planted, Paul planted and warned this church. In Acts chapter 19, Paul planted the church. He shared the gospel. Actually, from this place, in the Hall of Tyrannus, this is one of the verses that really drives my life here in L.A. He, you know, he, for two years in the Hall of Tyrannus, every day he was speaking about the kingdom, and it says about the gospel. And it says every inhabitant, every resident of the region of Asia heard the word of the Lord. It's one of, that should be one of our life goals. That's one of my life goals. That's one of the life goals of our church should be, is that every resident in Los Angeles County hears the gospel from a Christian who loves the gospel and is part of a church that displays the gospel. Wouldn't that be awesome? That all 18 million in Metro LA and all 10 million in LA County and all 80,000 people in Bellflower hear a clear articulation of the gospel message. Well, that's what Paul did out of Ephesus. Timothy was the pastor there later on, or he was a leader there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. According to church tradition, John the Apostle became a pastor there, a leader there in church tradition. Maybe first, second, or third John was written to Ephesus. We're not sure. But this is a well-taught church. I mean, if you look back at previous leaders, you know, any local church, you can look at the history of a church and say, this was this pastor from this year to this year and so on. So, you know, there's churches according to their leaders somewhat. And here it's like, yeah, Paul planted our church. Timothy, who's pretty much Paul's protege, led our church. And then the apostle John led our church. And Paul discipled many members of the original church, and he installed and helped install the first elders of this church. Isn't that a pretty good church to go to? I mean, just thinking of New Testament apostles, right? To have that kind of lineage, and that's your local church? That was Ephesus. Well taught. Well trained. And it was a big city on a trade route between Rome to the west and to the rest of the empire on the east. So a lot of people passed through Ephesus. It's much like Los Angeles, right? You get a lot of people passing through L.A., a lot of people chasing their dreams here in this city of stars, if you've seen a movie recently. Um, and, you know, when you have a lot of people, itinerants coming through and, and different people coming through the city there in Ephesus, you would get a lot of frauds, itinerant frauds, false teachers who come through and try to make a name for themselves in Ephesus. Are there any false teachers in Los Angeles? Trying to make a name for themselves here in the church scene. We have a TV show. Is that TV show still on? Preachers of LA? I don't even know if it's still showing, but that was a show that badly misrepresented what a, what a Christian biblical preacher is. But um, yeah, so it's not too different from, from our region here in Los Angeles. Now the command again is clear in chapter 2 verse 5. Repent, turn away, right? To turn back. Now around this command of repent, I want you to go back to Revelation 2 5. Look at the verse again. You actually have three three actions to do in verse 5. What are the three actions? First of all, it says what? Remember, Remember how far you've fallen. Secondly, what? Repent. And then lastly, do the works you did at first. So there's a remember, repent, and return. The main command is repent. It's said twice here in this letter, and in all seven churches, it's the majority command. So repentance is a turning away from sin. It's a changing of your mindset from living a life where God is not... God is either ignored or God is second or somewhere less on your priority. That's what we would call sin, where God is sidelined. 
Not just when you're just saying, I hate God and I'm evil. It's just like, yeah, I like God, but he's not God of my life. Well, that's just as bad as hating God altogether, according to God. So repent of putting God, of sidelining God and put God back in the center of your life. Now, four reasons why we are to obey this command. Okay, so now if you're following here, and you're, you're keeping track here, you can follow along here. Four reasons why we need to repent. Now, um, before we get into these four reasons, one more thing to say. Look at verse 5 one more time. It's the second word in my translation. It might be the first word in your translation. What's after the word remember or right around the word remember? From. Therefore or someone else said it. Remember then. Okay, here's why I'm outlining the sermon this way. I need to tell you why so that you can see that this is what I think John is communicating. When he says remember then or therefore remember, whenever you use the word therefore, what precedes the therefore? The reason, right? I'm hungry, therefore I went to the restaurant to eat. Why did you go to the restaurant to eat? Because I was hungry. So you give a reason and the therefore is signaling that the action you're calling to repent. Why? Because of what I just said. So this, this passage is giving us reasons to repent. And we have four of them here in this passage. Number one, if you're taking notes, number one, repent because of what you've done. Okay, church at Ephesus, First Southern Baptist Church, why should you repent and ask God for forgiveness and turn your life around? Because of what you've done. What have they done? Look at verse 2. Revelation 2 verse 2 says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be liars. So what have they done? They have done, it says, I know your works and your labor. So they've done deeds. They're doers. They've done actions. They're not a church that's all talk. You know some churches are all talk. This church is not all talk. They take action. They have done good things. They have done good for their neighbors. They have done good for each other. They have obeyed things that God has told them to do. I know your works and your labor. It's not just the fact that you've done deeds. It's that you're a doer. You work hard. Labor is not always enjoyable, right? Labor is laborious, we would say. And laborious means there's a toil to it. There's a certain curse to it where it gets tiring. Yes, there's satisfaction in a, in a job well done, but it is also tiring at times. It gets wearisome. And so Jesus is saying, I know your works. I know what you've been doing in your church. I know your labor. I know your endurance. Now, when he's saying, I know, this is interesting. Why does he know our church? Why does he know the churches? Well, you could say because he knows everything. But it says he's walking among the lampstands. He walks among the church. In other words, Jesus is here. Right here, in this room, right now with us. Amen. And he knows your thoughts right now as you're sitting there. He knows your motivation. He knows your intentions. He knows your plans. He knows your ambitions. He knows you. You can't avoid it. He knows it. He knows when we sing a song and our mind wanders for a verse or something, you know, and we start thinking about, you know, something else. He knows when we sing to impress other people or he knows when we're giving a greeting and we're faking how we're actually doing. He knows everything. But the encouraging thing is he also knows our good, right? He knows that we, we have done things that are well. We have worked hard and we have endured. It says here, I know your works, your labor and your endurance. These are not only doers. These are people who endure. They don't give up. I know your endurance. You guys don't quit. Yeah, it gets hard. Yeah, life gets hard. But you keep doing what a church ought to be doing. You keep doing good. You keep obeying. And you guys endure when it gets hard. And we need to be doers and not hearers as a church, right? Amen. We need to not grow weary in doing well. 
for we will reap if we faint not. Not only are they doers in that regard, look at verse 3 again, or verse 2. You cannot tolerate who? Evil. Or you can't tolerate evil people. So when the church is, is screaming tolerance, Jesus is commending them for their what? Intolerance. You cannot tolerate evil people. This is not the Jesus that a lot of people know. This is the Jesus of the Bible. You cannot tolerate evil. You're intolerant of evil. And actually, let's just be fair. Everyone's intolerant, right? People are intolerant of whether, just take the homosexuality debate, for example. Whichever side you're on, there's people who are intolerant of the, of the other view. They don't tolerate it generally, right? They want them fired or they want their, their business to go down or whatever. So intolerance goes both ways. But the point here is Jesus is saying, I commend you, church, because you are intolerant of evil. You have to be intolerant of something or else you have no feelings about anything or else you don't care about anything, right? You have to tolerate, you have to be intolerant of the, of, of your values being attacked. So if you value your family and someone's attacking your family, guess what? You're intolerant of people attacking your family, right? You won't tolerate that. And is that a bad thing? Not if you're the protector and provider of your home. It's a good thing to be intolerant of people violating certain things, right? Amen. Of what, whatever you value. The question is, are you valuing the right thing? Here, this church is valuing the right thing because they're intolerant of what? Evil. They're not intolerant of good. They're intolerant of evil. And so you, you, you cannot tolerate evil people. In other words, they do church discipline. If a, if a member of their church is saying they believe in Jesus, but they live contrary to Jesus, and they refuse to repent after the church lovingly pursues them, this church has the guts to remove them from the church. They don't tolerate and just turn the other eye. You know, they, they, don't, they don't just look the other way and pretend they don't see anything. They take their commitment to Christ seriously as a church. That's a good thing. We need to do that. We, we do that in this church. We're growing in that as well. We need to give and receive encouragement and have a culture of reproof and correction. Our church needs to be a church where correct, being corrected is not a bad thing. And you're actually thankful when people correct you. The, the opposite of that is pride, right? To get mad when people correct you. There are only two options. Well, I guess unless you're perfect, then you don't need to be corrected at all. But if you admit you're not perfect, you either are correctable or you're too proud to be corrected. Amen. Those are really the only two options. You either grow in pride and arrogance and ignorance of your faults or you let people correct you and you receive it with love and, and gratitude amen so so they did that they were disciplining they received they had this culture of correction they practiced meaningful membership as we are i, I commend our church we we took three members off the roll in february february 5th in our business meeting some people looked at that as a discouragement i was ecstatic because we're obeying the lord yeah it's a small step but it's it's a step in the right direction isn't it and so we're doing this as well. We want to hold each other accountable. But this church is not only disciplined and doers and doing deeds and determined. They're also discerning. Look at verse 3 again, or verse 2. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be what? Liars. You guys could smell a liar from a mile away. There are people, you have discernment. There are churches where you could come in and if you sound somewhat biblical, you quote a Bible verse and say whatever popular slogans you want to say and everyone's going to be shouting Amen. Right? And giving their money and, and committing to the church. And they're, they're not thinking about truth and error. That there are lies. That Satan is a liar and that he's actually in the world and he is deceiving churches. Amen. This church is not fooled. They have discernment. They know when a teacher is a false teacher. You, they test them. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you have found them to be liars. Now these false apostles are probably traveling gospelizers and church planners. 
Some might think that they're actually people who are saying that they're one of the 13 or 14 or 15 big church leaders of the universal church apostles, capital A apostles. Regardless of that, the fact is that they test them. Just like Paul told the, the churches of Galatia. If I preach a different gospel, what, do you, what should you do? Kick me out. Call me accursed, even though I'm the apostle Paul. Because no one gets to get behind this pulpit or teach at a church and not be tested. And any pastor or leader who refuses to be tested, you should be suspicious of them. They, they need to be tested unless they're saying that they're the authority. But if they're going to put themselves under the Bible, then you get to test them by the Bible. Amen. Right? And that, that's what this church has done. So not only are they testing teachers, they're also doctrinal. They know the gospel. They know who Jesus is and who Jesus isn't because everyone has a version of Jesus in America. They know the true Jesus versus all the false different Jesuses out there. They know the gospel message. They know the Bible. They know Christian theology. And we need to be the same, Right? And our churches, you guys are doing this. We need to keep going in this. We need to know our statement of faith. Read, read theology. Read the Bible. Know the gospel. Talk about it. Disagree with each other. Test your ideas. Ask your questions. I think that, to me, that's the single best thing you could do to grow in your knowledge of God and the Bible is to ask your real questions and curiosities. Satan would want you to have a curiosity, pops in your mind, and goes right out, and you continue life in your distraction, missing the whole point of life. Amen. Ask your questions and get true answers. Get right answers. So these people were doctrinal. They had the right teachers. or you know, The original word for doctor is teacher. A doctor is someone who teaches doctrine. So they had the right doctors of their church, the right leaders. I'm not talking about a, a degree from a school. I'm talking about teachers who are faithful to the word. This is a good church so far, right? Doing good deeds, discerning, disciplined, determined. They died to themselves. Look at verse three. This gets even more intense. I know you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and you haven't grown weary. They've been getting beat up, attacked, even perhaps killed for being Christians. And guess what? They haven't grown what? Weary. Weary. I'm thinking of Captain America here, you know, when he's a little scrawny guy in the movie and he gets beat up over and over again. And he says, what? I can do this all day. Let's just keep going. I can go all day. That, that's how this church was. You kill some of their members, you persecute them, you throw some of them in jail for, for believing in Jesus. And what do they say? We could do this all day. Let's go. And so they get persecuted, they get trials, and they just keep going. They keep dying to themselves in their commitment to God. So, so repent because of what you've done. But you're saying, well, what, what have we done? We've only done good things here. What's their problem? Look at verse 4. But... Even though you're doctrinal and you have good doctors and you're dying to yourself and you're discerning and you're disciplined and you're determined and you're doers of good deeds, even with all of that, Revelation 2 5 says, But I have this, 2 4, I have this against you. You have what? Left your first you have left your first love. You have abandoned the love you had at first. I would say you have left your initial love. It's not your first love like as if Jesus is your priority. He's supposed to be your priority. That's not what it's saying here though. What it means by first here is the love you had at first. The love you had when you first believed in God, when you first became a Christian, the passion for God, the joy in God, the delight in God that you felt and knew and tasted, the goodness of God that you tasted, you have left that and you have become strictly duty bound. You do it because it's my duty. It's the right thing to do. And Jesus is saying, you've missed the whole point. You left the love you had at first. Do you think this was about a book? Do you think this was about ideas and concepts? Do you think this was about a group and who's on the list and who's not? Do you think this was about suffering hard like a soldier and just, you know, facing, uh, you know, facing suffering like Flint and just being determined? Is that what you thought Christianity was about? 
I have this against you. You don't love the way you're supposed to love. Now, there's a debate about what love means here. I don't have time to get into the debate here, but I'll say what I think it means. I think it means love for God and love for people. It's not profound. I think, I think John's intentional here not saying. I, I think you could go too far if you try to define it too much. Um, it's almost like 1 John 4, 19. The King James Version says, we love him because he what? First loved us. Now, it's a King James Version, but there are more recent, more accurate, and, and reliable manuscripts that actually correct that translation to say, we love because he first loved us. Now, we love him. We love. It, it's a little bit more general. Now, of course, that means loving God. But if you read 1 John chapter 4, it's about loving one another as well. And we love. Why? Because he what? He first loved us. It's, what's, what's the great commandment? Mark 12, 30 and 31. They say, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God, our hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God, so you only have one priority. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Love God with all your... That's the greatest commandment. And you know what the second greatest commandment is? Love your neighbor as yourself. yourself. And Jesus says, on these two commands holds the whole law. You want to know what life is about? You want to know what your duty is about? It's about love. Loving God, enjoying God, delighting in God, and loving people. Finding your joy in people as image bearers who show you God. That's what life is about. If you don't do that, you're missing the whole point. Love is the source. Why do you love people? Because you love God. Why do you love God? Because he first what? Loved you. Love is the source of what you do. Love is covering and the expression of everything you do. It's supposed to be. And love is the goal of what you do. Why do you do the good things? Why do you discern true doctrine? Why do you do what's right? Why do you not tolerate evil? Why? Why do you suffer? Because you love God and you love people. You love the people who are persecuting you and beating you up for Christianity. Because in that, they see Christ. And they might get saved one day, right? That's what happened to the Apostle Paul. It's all because of love. It's all in love and it's all for love. That's the whole point. And if you do everything without love, then Jesus has something against you. You know, in my devotions this week, I'm reading through Deuteronomy, so you can pray for me as you guys read through your own Bible reading. If you pray for me um, during the week as we pray for the members. In Deuteronomy 13, I ran across this this week. Listen to this. 13.1. I'm going to go to like verse 3 or so. If a prophet or someone has dream, who has dreams arises among you and proclaims a sign or wonder to you, and that sign or wonder he has promised you comes about. But he says, so he, he made a prophecy and it came true. But he says, let us follow after other gods, which you have not known, and let us worship them. Do not listen to the prophet's words or to that dreamer. So in other words, discern true doctrine, right? Now listen to this verse. Why? For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. why do you test truth versus error? What is God testing? Is he testing your theological knowledge? It's not what the verse says. The Lord your God is testing whether you love him with all that you are by a doctrinal test. Why do we want true doctrine? Because God's testing if you love him with all that you are. Not just no truths. But love him. 
That's the point. That's, that's the point of, of Christianity. And so, so what, what do we do? If we're going to repent from this, so the, the first point is repent. Why? Because of what you've done. And what have you done? You've done a lot of good works without loving God and loving people. Or you could just say you've done a lot of good things without love. That's why you need to repent. That's the first reason why you need to repent. And how should we repent? There's a small point here before we go to our other three reasons. How should you repent? It says in verse 5, remember how, remember where you've fallen from. So remember, remember how you used to love Jesus. Remember how you used to love people when you first became a Christian. The joy you had, the peace you had, the comfort you had, the blank check you were willing to sign, right? Jesus, tell me wherever to go, whatever you want me to do, and I'll do it. I love you. I'm so happy in you. I'll do whatever you call me to do. You know, we, this is so messed up in our church's cultures, not just our church necessarily, but you know, when you get a new Christian, we had a new Christian in, in, in a CFBC in West Covina where he got so passionate for God, he started driving to downtown LA, picking up homeless people and bringing them to our church every Sunday. And you know what I said and others said to him? I don't know if I said this to him, but I certainly thought this. Oh, he's on that new Christian high. He'll get over it. How wicked is that? Get over it? Get over loving God and loving people? And just settle into the status quo of Christianity? No, you shouldn't get over it. You shouldn't get over loving God and loving people. You should never get over that. You should always be willing to stretch yourself and extend yourself and inconvenience yourself to love God and love people because that inconvenience is your greater joy. And you got that when you first came to Christ. And he's saying, remember what you did at first and return to the love you had at first. Remember uh, the four soils. Jesus says there's four soils. The word of God is being passed around. And, and it says that they receive the word with joy. When you first became a Christian, you received the word with joy. Matthew 13, 44 says, um, the kingdom of God is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. In his joy, he sells everything he has to buy the field. Christianity is a great self-sacrifice in a sense, but it's really a no-brainer in another sense, right? You sacrifice all of your life, but is that a, is that a bad deal? If someone says, give me, give me your life savings. So if you say, I got $500,000 in life savings. Give me your life savings and I'll give you a thousand times that value in one week in cash. Would you do it? Yeah. Would you sacrifice everything you have? Would you give up everything you had? Yeah. I mean, if you're smart, right? It's a no brainer at that point. So in one sense, is a, is a Christian sacrificial? Yeah, in a sense, it looks sacrificial from the outside. But when you understand the true value of who God is, it's a no brainer. Why wouldn't I sacrifice my life? It, it's just, there's, there's not even, there's no debate in my mind when you're in love with God. It's just obvious. Of course I'm going to give up everything, my family if I have to, for God. Because he's God. So remember where you came from. Remember your original initial passion for God or even some other previous season in your life. You know, Luke 7.47 says, The one who has been forgiven much, or the reason why you love much is because you're forgiven much. The one who loves little is forgiven little. When you're unaware of your sins, why do we spend time confessing sins to God and to each other? Because we like to feel guilty. Because we like to beat each other up. We like to shame each other. That's why we confess sins to, to one another to God. No. It's because we want to love God more. And when you know, you realize how much you're forgiven, the more you love. And the less you realize that, the less you love. It's all about loving God. And then so return to the deed you did at first. This is going way longer than I thought, so we've got to move on. We're on reason one. Okay. Um, let's see. 
Maybe I can pick this up. We'll see. Okay. Um, if you're not a Christian and you're here, you might say, you know what? The one reason I can't become a Christian is because Christians are hypocrites. They say one thing, they do another thing. They say they love God, they have this fake smile on their, you know, on their faces, and then you, you turn around or you, you turn around and then they backstab you. That's happened to me, you know. And so you might say that, that I'd never become a Christian because Christians are hypocrites. Let me respond to that by saying three things. Number one, you're right, and we're sorry. Christians are inconsistent in their lives. All Christians are. We are sinners. And we don't have that as an excuse to say, get over it. We have that as a reason to repent and ask you for forgiveness. So if you're not a Christian here and you've been, you've been betrayed by a Christian, and all Christians here can say that they've been betrayed by fellow Christians at certain times in their lives, then we, I want to say on behalf of Christians, we're sorry and we need you to forgive us. So if you could tell us specifically, we'd love to ask for forgiveness because you're right. There's hypocrisy in our lives. There's inconsistency. It's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is Jesus hates the hypocrisy more than you do. The Bible talks about hypocrisy. So it's not like Christians and Jesus is unaware that they're hypocrites and that we, even true Christians, can be hypocrites at times. He hates it more than we do. So just know you're, you're, on, you're on good, you have a good partner in hating hypocrisy in that regard. And then the third thing to say is with, with, with Martin Luther King Jr., you know, a lot of the uh, white Christians were saying to him at the time, white pastors were saying that he's wrong for fighting the way he was fighting against racism. And and some people are saying to Martin Luther King Jr., why don't you just give up Christianity then? And he said, you don't give up Christianity. He's like, well, look at their Christianity. And they're, they're, they're being racist in the name of Jesus. And Martin Luther King Jr. said, the answer is not rejecting Christianity, but going deeper into true Christianity. That's just a false Christianity. Or it's a fake expression of it. It's a hypocritical expression of it. And so if you've been offended by hypocrites as a non-Christian, let me just tell you, I get it. We get it. But that doesn't mean you should reject Jesus because of it. It just means that they have been sinners and that they found a solution in Jesus and you can find that solution too. Because let's be honest, you don't have to be Christian to be a hypocrite, right? Amen. You just need to be human and a sinner to be a hypocrite. Kids, let me say something to the kids. There are some kids here and we do encourage kids to be in our gatherings. If you're a child here, I want to remind you children that... You can find ways of obeying your parents on the outside without loving God on the inside. And you can become masters in that over the years. So I say this to my kids, to any other kids here. Be careful because God knows. And I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying that it's a good thing that God knows. Because then faking it no longer is – you don't want to fake it anymore because what's the point, right? I mean if he knows anyways, so you just got to be real. So I would encourage you kids as you obey your parents and as – you know, sometimes we can spank you or some parents will spank you, as the Bible says you should. You know, um, if, if they do that, it's, it's because of love and, and it's a good thing to not just obey on the outside but on the inside. If you're an employee, most of you are in the workforce, um, you should be loving God and loving your workers, loving your job, loving your bosses while you work too. Not just on the outside. Don't just do your job for the paycheck. You'll miss the point. Do your job because of love for God. And love for people. Okay, that's the first reason why. We'll probably get through two here and pick it up again next next time we preach again, next week. Okay, second reason why this is not going well. When you study a text like this so long and you just got so much, it's, yeah, it's not going well in terms of the time. All right, we'll, just, we'll do one more point here. Why should you repent from your initial love? Because of what you may lose. And what were they in danger of losing in verse 5? Their lampstand being removed. Why should you repent? 
Because if you don't, listen to me, First Southern Baptist Church, if you don't repent, then Jesus will remove this church from being a light. If you continue going on, doing your doctrinal and you know, deeds and, and discernment and determination and dying to yourself in, in suffering and you don't love God and people and you continue to miss the point, you misrepresent Jesus and he will remove your lampstand. He'll remove this church or he'll let this church continue to go without his presence or power. And you can continue meeting. We can continue giving offering and doing churchy things. But we're not a real church in the sense of the Spirit's power being here in loving God and loving people the way he designed us to be. Amen. So we must repent. If a church is a group of Christians taking responsibility for each other's discipleship individually and corporately to disciple the nations, and we're not discipling the nations in the love of God, then what are we doing? Steve Timmis said, discipleship is leading people to love. And if it's not that, then it's a delusion. If you disciple people and they're not growing in love for God or love for others, then, then you're deluding them and you're leading them into a delusional Christianity. Tom Rayner says 70 to 80% of churches are declining in America today, are plateauing or declining. They're not growing. 70 to 80% of churches. Wow, four out of five. Four out of five churches are plateauing or declining. And we'll get to the church at Sardis eventually, where you can have big churches that look like they're growing, but they're really not doing the right thing either. So um, numbers is not everything, but that's still pretty um, devastating that 70 to 80% of churches are in decline. You know the church that planted this church? First Southern Baptist Church of Long Beach? Was it a few years ago? I've told you this before. They sold their building to Jehovah's Witnesses? Three or four years ago? The church that planted this church in 1949. It's not impossible that this church can be extinct in, 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 a, in years, in months, if, if we don't repent. He will remove our lampstand. Why? Because the whole point of a church is to be a lampstand, right? It's like having a car without an engine. Or a marriage without feelings. Or being a public speaker without a voice. Or having a family without meaningful relationships. You're just a family because you're biologically related. But there's no meaningful relationships there. There are families like that. What's the point of having a family where you're biologically related, but there are no meaningful relationships of vulnerability and love? When light bulbs stop shining in your house, what do you do? Throw them out. Throw them out and you replace them, right? You replace car batteries when they won't start your car. God will remove churches when they don't shine the love of Jesus to the world and back to him. He removed Saul from being king. He removed Israel from the land. He removed Adam and Eve from the garden. He even removed Jesus from the land of the living on the cross because of sin. And Jesus didn't sin himself. He, sinned in our, he died in our place. He didn't sin in our place. He died in our place for our sins. But God removes lampstands that don't shine now here's a closing question here and then we'll apply it and we'll close why is this sin so serious that a church that, that jesus will actually snuff a church out so there every church has sins right every church struggles through sins why is this sin so serious that he'll actually just take the church out altogether i'll give you four texts here to answer the question before we close 1 Corinthians 8. So turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, or you could just listen. 1 Corinthians 8. 
So this is the second reason why we need to repent of losing, of leaving our initial love, because he'll remove our our church's light, our lampstand. First Corinthians chapter eight verses one through three says this. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, and knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not know it as he ought to know know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So what do you need to do when you grow in knowledge? Grow in what? Love. Love. If you don't grow in love when you're growing in knowledge, knowledge does what to you? Puffs Puffs you up. You grow in what? Arrogance. Mm -hmm. Now, should we grow in knowledge? Yes or no? Yes. You're commanded to grow in knowledge. Second second Peter 3.18, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. You're commanded to grow in knowledge, and yet that's a dangerous thing. Because if you grow in knowing God's word and knowing God or knowing truths and not growing in love, then you do grow in arrogance, in puffing up. Knowledge growth is never neutral. It changes you. It has to. It either makes you more loving or makes you more arrogant. But it doesn't leave you where you are. Truth without love is like cancer, splitting cells in your body and getting disproportionate. I'm not saying you should lower truth to your love level. I'm saying you should always go 100% truth, 100% love. And if you only do 100% truth and, and your love is not – and you're not always turning that truth into love for God and love for people, it's like a cancer in your soul. It makes it hard for the body to work. And if you do that in a church, the church has a cancer in it. And it becomes really doctrinally arrogant, rigid. The badge of Christian maturity is how much you know, which to me means nothing in and of itself is whether you're a mature Christian or not. It's not a measurement by itself ever of mature Christianity. What is the distinction of a church? I mean, what makes a church a church? How do you know when, when it's a real church or not? John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says, by this, he says, love one another. He's talking to his 13 disciples, 12 disciples. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. How do you know if someone's a true follower of Jesus? By their what? Love, love for who? Others. For each other. Actually, in this, in this case, it's for each other. Not even loving the world. By the way the church loves each other, the world knows that they're true Christians, that they truly follow Jesus. In other words, the distinguishing mark of disciples is love for one another, which is why this can't just be loving God. If you love God, you must love each other. And if you don't love each other, fellow Christians, then you don't love God. That's John's point in 1 John chapter 4. The way you know a disciple and the way you know a church is by its love. And if they don't love each other, then why are they a lampstand still? Right? This is why this command is so important. Because the very essence of the church is love for one another. That's the very distinguishing mark. And when you don't do that and you do all the other duties... You're still not distinguishing yourself from other people. Muslims, not only Muslims, I don't know, I'm, I'm pausing here because there's a lot of other religions. Muslims have doctrine. They have devotion. They have deeds. They'll suffer. They'll die for what they believe. What's different from that in the church at Ephesus? You can take all of these virtues of the church of Ephesus and plot it onto another religious group. What you can't do is give them love for one another. That's divine. And a love for God. That comes exclusively through the gospel. It is supernatural. It's heavenly. That's the one thing you can't have in a religious group. 
So if you have everything else and you don't have this, then yes, remove that. That's why this command is so important. It's what distinguishes the church from just another religious group in this sense. False love and inadequate works subtly become cheap substitutes. Doctrinal integrity, consistent activity, membership purity, extreme persecution and endurance does not define or distinguish the church at the end of the day. The one and only mark of a healthy church is love. Biblically and specifically and practically cultivated, expressed, and exercised. True faith is faith working through. You guys know that? Faith working through love. The last verse here, and then we'll apply it and we'll close. Last verse. We, we covered this in our membership class upstairs. So Hebrews 10.25 says, Consider one another how to stir each other up to what? Love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why does the church meet together? To, to, stir, to consider how to stir each other up to what? Love and, good works. love and good works, not just good works. It's very important that the word love, that love is there. You meet together. Why are you here this morning? So that you would love God more and you'd love people more. That your love, which is flickering, would be stoked this morning. That's what, that's what we do every time we gather. It's like a, a piece of a log from a fireplace being removed from the fire. That's how you are all week. You come back to your church on Sunday, and it's the same people that you see and love, and they know you. And then your, your fire starts to get hot again, right? And then you go out for another week of, of hard life in the world, of trying to love God and love people. You get discouraged, you come right back in to get encouraged and stirred up again. The whole point of a church gathering together is to stir each other up in love. And if you're not doing that, you might as well not be a lampstand. Therefore, repent, or Christ will remove you, remove our church, from being a lampstand. So, FSBC family, know this mark and let's exercise and cultivate a heavenly love for one another. I'm only halfway done with my sermon. We're going to finish it here, but we'll, we'll finish it next week. If you're, look, if you're a Christian, you're not a member of a church, look for a church that practically cultivates love for each other. It doesn't have to be this one. I'm glad that we're not the only church doing this or trying to do this. And growing in this. There are other churches. But if you're a Christian, you need to be part of one of those. And if you're not a Christian, let me just invite you here at the end briefly to trust in Jesus Christ. The reason why our lives are marked by love is because we have a God of love. And it says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son, only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So if you're not a Christian, God wants to give you life, and he wants to give you meaningful love in your life. He wants to reset the direction of your life so that you don't miss the whole point of why you're alive. So if you're not a Christian, I'm inviting you to trust in Jesus. Why Jesus? Because God sent Jesus to die for our sins. He lived the life we should have lived. He was hung on a cross, and he died on the cross and took the wrath of God on himself. So God doesn't have to put the wrath and punishment that you deserve on you. Because we're all sinners and we all deserve help. But God puts it on Jesus, not on you, and then raises him from the dead if you will repent and trust in Jesus. And so I'm inviting you this morning to turn from your sins, to turn from your goodness, to turn from your religiosity, to turn from your or my version of Christianity and churchianity and trust in Jesus alone. His righteousness, his life, his death, his resurrection. Trust in Christ alone for your salvation and entrust yourself to him. And God will forgive you He'll give you eternal life now. You'll begin to experience it now. And you will begin to be transformed by his love as love begins to dominate your life more and more. And every time you get off track, go back to your church family who will stir you back up to love and good works.
Well, those are two of the four reasons. We'll cover the other two next week of why we need to repent from leaving our initial first love. Let's pray.